Abby Ends Revenge with Jeremy Bowman. Episode 5, Oat versus Samuel. In this episode, we discuss Oat and Samuel. What are they? How do they work? And why do we care? As well as, what are the differences between the two? Whether you realize it or not, you are actually using OAuth on a daily basis. OAuth stands for Open Authorization. It is an open standards protocol that allows applications to have a secure designated access system. Or more specifically, it allows one website or application the ability to access resources hosted on another website or application on behalf of a given user. To be specific here, we are discussing OAuth version 2.0. So let's give you a good example for our OAuth discussion. Perhaps you would like one service or application to be able to post updates to another. Specifically, we would like ESPN to routinely post scoring updates to our Facebook account. It is conceivable that one could log into ESPN and statically configure in the ESPN account the Facebook credentials to our Facebook account. However, there are two clear issues with this type of system. The most obvious one is the security issues this now poses. In the event that there was a breach of security in ESPN, the credentials for all of the Facebook users would now have been compromised as well. Even if there were no security concerns related to this method, it still would not scale well. Imagine having multiple services that all want to post to your one Facebook account. The user would have to update their credentials at every service, every time they change their password with Facebook. OAuth was designed specifically to handle these types of scenarios. How to create a secure manner for applications to interact on behalf of another user without the necessity of storing a user's credentials. So how does this work? Instead of sharing passwords between applications or services, OAuth uses the concept of authorization tokens. The authorization token proves the identity of an entity between consumers and service providers. It is important to reiterate that OAuth is providing authorization for access to resources and not actual authentication of the end user. There are four main roles in OAuth that allows this to happen. First is the resource owner. This is the user or system that actually owns the protected resources and can grant access to them. In the case of the Facebook example allowing ESPN to post to your account, you are the actual resource owner because you own the data in your Facebook account and will be granting ESPN access to modify it. The next role to discuss is the client. The client is the system that requires access to the protected resources. It is important to not confuse the client and the resource owner. The client is normally an application, while the resource owner is normally some type of user. In order for the client to access the resources, the client will have to have a valid access token. In our Facebook example, ESPN will be the client. Once it has the valid access token, it will be able to use that to publish updates to our Facebook timeline, for instance. Another role in this process is the authorization server. The authorization server will receive a request from the client to get the access token. The authorization server will issue the access token to an authenticated client 
if it is granted permission from the authenticated resource owner. In order to prevent the resource owner's web browser from being involved in the token exchange between the client and the authorization server, the authorization server hosts two endpoints. One is for the interactive authentication and consent of the resource owner, and the second is for the machine-to-machine -machine interaction between the client and the authorization server. This adds an additional layer of security to how the protocol behaves, preventing potentially malicious resource owners from hijacking potential access tokens. The final player in this is the resource server. The resource server protects the resource owner's data. It will accept requests from the client, validate the client's token, and then provide the access to the data. In our Facebook example, Facebook would be the resource server since it is where our data actually exists. There are a few more terms to discuss before we examine how the communication occurs. The first is scope. The scope determines what level of access the client may have on the data provided by the resource server. The resource server defines the possible scope values that a client may request. In our example, the scope would be read and write access to our timeline, for instance. While we have discussed what an access token is, that is, the token used by the client to present to the resource server for access, there is another value, the authorization code, that is exchanged with the client from the authorization server that the client is then able to exchange subsequently for the access token itself. Also, there may be a refresh token provided by the authorization server to the client as well. This normally comes with a much longer expiration time than the access token. The client can use the refresh token when the access token is expiring in order to obtain a new access token without requiring further interaction from the resource owner. So we have identified the main players. How does this work to maintain all the required security? First, the client must have its own means of proving its identity for authentication. This is done by the client requesting a client ID and a client secret from the authorization server. The client ID and the client secret will be used whenever the client needs to prove its identity to the authorization server during the process. It's important to keep in mind who the client is because the client will be the one initiating the request. So we want to give ESPN, our client, access to our data in Facebook, the resource server. Here's how the communication will occur. The client requests authorization from the authorization server. It provides its client ID and its client secret as proof of the client's identity. It also supplies the scope of the request as well as its own endpoint URI. This is a redirection URI that the authorization server will be able to use to send the access token or authorization code back to the client without involving the resource owner's browser or application. The authorization server will then validate the client's identity and verify the requested scope is correct. The resource owner will then interact with the authorization server to prove the identity of the resource owner 
as well as granting the specific access requested in the scope. The authorization server then will return to the client via the redirect URI a single-use authorization code. The client makes a subsequent call to the authorization server providing the authorization code that is now exchanged for the access token itself. With the access token, the client can now make direct calls to the resource server. The resource server validates the access token with the authentication server and, if valid, provides access to the user's resources based on the scope granted. So now let's take a look at SAML. SAML is the Security Assertion Markup Language. SAML is used for the concept of single sign-on by enterprises. It is also an open standard used for authentication. In SAML, there are two roles, the identity provider and the service provider. The concept is to allow the ability to have a user utilize single sign-on across multiple domains or web services. This is achieved by creating a centralized user authentication with the identity provider. Web applications then leverage SAML via the identity provider to grant access to the end users. The web application itself no longer has to maintain its own identity store, but instead allows the centralized identity provider to handle authentication as well as password recovery mechanisms. For the end user, the user no longer has to maintain credentials for each individual web service instead only having a single account. A good example of SAML is with Google. Many websites allow users to access their data at that particular website by using their Google account. The user only provides their identity to Google with their Google account and password information. They are then able to access their data at the various websites without any further login. Additional benefits of using SAML include the ability to require multi-factor authentication, or MFA. Since the identity provider is now centralized, adding MFA to the identity provider improves the authentication security across all the service providers that are using SAML. As we are discussing MFA, we would like to point out that it is best if MFA is able to provide two of the following. Something you know, like a password, something you are, like a fingerprint, and something you have, like a USB key. So while requesting a password and PIN may seem like good security, since both may be stored in the same single text file and therefore compromised together, it is not best practice. The SAML communication happens like this. The user opens their web browser and navigates to the service provider's web application which uses a centralized identity provider for authentication. The web application responds with a SAML request. The browser passes the SAML request to the identity provider. The identity provider parses the SAML request. Then the identity provider authenticates the user by prompting for a username and password or some other authentication factor. Now the identity provider may skip this step if the user has already authenticated. The identity provider then generates the SAML response and returns it to the user's browser. 
The browser then sends the generated sample response to the service provider's web application, which verifies the response. If the verification succeeds, the web application grants the user access. So to highlight, Sample is used for authentication. It uses XML-based payloads, and the client's browser sits in the middle of the exchange. OAuth is for authorization. It uses JSON-based payloads and allows for direct communication between the client and the authorization server, as well as the client and the resource server. Both of these protocols are open standards in today's world. As we start discussing more topics in IBM, we will examine how we can integrate these authentication and authorization mechanisms in our automated IBM environment. This has been IBM's Revenge with Jeremy Bowman. We look forward to your comments and suggestions. Perhaps there is a topic you would like us to discuss. You can reach us on Twitter at IBN's Revenge or send us email to comments at IBN's Revenge.com.